Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Uh, welcome back to Shakespeare and Company. This is the first public outdoor event we've done really for close to five years. Um, <laughs> we had the cathedral burn down. We had, some of you may know, a pandemic. Um, we've had building works in the bookstore and finally uh, we are back. We're so happy to be back and we couldn't be happier to be back than with Hernan Diaz. Oh, Adam, thank you. Trust by Hernan Diaz is the story of Benjamin Rusk, Wall Street's most successful financier and his brilliant but troubled wife, Helen. Trust by Hernan Diaz <coughs> is the story of Andrew Bevel, whose life converges and diverges with Rusk's in ways that may well destabilize the reader. Trust by Hernan Diaz <laughs> is the story of Ida Partenza, the daughter of Italian immigrants who Bevel commissions to ghostwrite his memoir. Trust by Hernan Diaz is probably best read unspoiled, so I will stop there. Taking New York City in the decades around the Wall Street crash as its backdrop, trust, more generally, is a reflection on how money shapes and corrupts us, a meditation on the slipperiness of truth, an investigation into the control we really have over the fictions we all inhabit, and how, if at all, we might escape them. Trust also manages the rare feat of being both structurally inventive and compulsively readable. A perfect alignment of form and content, a kind of novel as palimpsest that constantly wrongfoots the readers, tumbling them into ever deeper connection with the characters, with early 20th century New York City, and at its most profound moments, of which there are many, with ourselves. All of which should make it manifestly unsurprising that this truly extraordinary novel won a Pulitzer Prize for fiction earlier this year, it's my very great pleasure to say, Hernan Diaz, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Adam, and thank you, um, Shakespeare and Company. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. I mean, look at this. This is, <laughs> this is bananas. Thank you all for being here. This is great. Thank you. Um, there's a moment early on in the book um, when you say what drew uh, Rask in this case, and we'll come on to talk about the different sections in the book later, but what drew Rask to the world of finance was the complexity of it, yes, but also the fact that he viewed capital as an antiseptically living thing. It moves, eats, grows, breeds, falls ill and may die, but it is clean. I found that a fascinating description both of capital, and I did wonder, was that one of the reasons that you were drawn to write a novel set in the world of finance and the world of capital. You know what, when, when I was thinking of, I, I can't remember the day I wrote that phrase. And it's a secret quote from Lawrence of Arabia where he says that he loves the desert because it's clean. Okay. Uh, I, um, this is something I've, this is, I don't know, I've never told this before. <laughs> um, and to me, it was um, uh, I was very drawn to finance capital rather than you know uh, um, capital that is rooted in in, in concrete goods. Mm -hmm. But but that's not I, I for the record I don't think capital is clean. Mm -hmm. I think capital is bloody. I think capital is messy, ruthless, and monstrous, and uh, 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 out of control. Mm -hmm. There is there is nothing tidy about it. Um, this is a very uh, ideological depiction of capital with which I, for one, do not mm -hmm. agree, just to, just to, <laughs> for, the, for the record. Um, what, what drew me to, to capital and finance capital is the realization that it is fictitious, mm -hmm. that, that money itself is a form of fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 is, uh, depend, it depends on our trust, on our confidence, in our belief in it. Very much like a, like a story, right. you know? It, yeah, yeah. It, it, it has the structure yeah. of fiction. Money does have the structure of fiction, which led me to think of the place that fiction has in our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very impatient when fiction is depicted as something irrelevant and yeah. epiphenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, so this was an entryway for me to think about how fiction rather than imitating life mm -hmm. may may shape it mm -hmm. and, w and was it that that interest in capital and the fiction of capital that 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 the the characters and the situation and the novel the novel's form which we'll come on to discuss i imagine it's a certain length grew out of 
Sorry? Did it did the did was it the fascination with capital that the novels characters and the form did it grow out of that, or did, was there perhaps a story that came to you to begin with, and you realised that that story had to be written in the world of Capital? Um, well, f- for me, stories and novels begin in a very mysterious way that has to do with feeling, um, and 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 oftentimes this feeling is very um, unfocused and 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 dim and opaque, and and the feeling in this case had to do with with solitude, right. and I, and I and I imagined. That with a great fortune, surely must come uh, great reach mm-hmm. and access, full access mm-hmm. to people, experiences, places. Um, but also, uh, for sure, as I imagine it, a, a sense of self-guardedness, uh-huh. a paranoia, confinement, seclusion, and suspicion. So this dissonance between between total reach uh, on the one hand and isolation on the other hand was the driving force. Then, as I educated myself in money matters yeah, yeah. in which I was fully illiterate um, I started thinking about issues like the one I just mentioned mm-hmm. you know that the, the, the fictional quality of capital and, and, and so on and so forth yeah. but but you know at the outset it was this 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 kind of um, uh, dim dim mm-hmm. feeling that I that I imagined because I've, I've never been a tycoon yeah yeah, yeah. You, know? you put me in mind of um the, the Canadian novelist Robertson Davies, when uh, he, when he said he whenever he was asked where did he get his ideas, he always said I don't get my ideas, my ideas get me, right. um, and that seems very close to um, to, to what you're describing. Um, let's talk then about Benjamin Rusk, so who is our first uh, entryway into the book. Um, when 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 we first meet him, he is uh, he feels like a sort of a great figure of literature in a way. There were two figures that came to me. One was Gatsby and one was Bartleby. And I oh. guess to to a lot of readers, these seem like very sort of incompatible um, uh, characteristics. And yet there was something about these characteristics which seemed to fit perfectly well in the world of finance. Um, wow. Uh, I, I love Bartleby. I love Herman Melville. He's, he's a central writer for me. And and this figure of pure negation that is Bartleby, I, I feel, is um, unsurpassed as a as a as a philosophical allegory of I don't know what, but I know it's an important allegory. <laughs> I don't know what it stands for yet, uh, and I love that I cannot crack it. Um, I suppose Moby Dick is is also. I I was just speaking about Moby speaking about Moby Dick yesterday, but. Um, uh, and of course, he's you know he's a scrivener, he's he's a bureaucrat, and um, and and he works in Wall Street. So, I think it may be our first Wall Street tale in American literature. On the other hand, and this is something I would never say in the United States, but we're in France. I I feel <laughs> it matters much less. Here. Yes. So uh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I I feel that this book was written against the Great Gatsby. It's it's a book that I that I that I feel uh, a strong aversion toward, yeah. And and Scott Fitzgerald as a as a writer in in general, I I find uh, greatly objectionable. Um, and uh, sorry, sorry. I know just <laughs> half of the people just left. Um, this is sort of my punk moment where I, um, I um, yeah and. There is, you know, in the uh, to me, the Great Gatsby feels like the um, uh, sort of it's a, it's a book that ends up bedazzled by by the very thing that it was supposed to be critiquing, uh, you know, which which to me is a severe, grave pitfall, um, and you can see this in in most of his stories as well, a, a, a diamond as big as the Ritz, and you know, it's. There is always that that point where um, uh, the the critical drive turns into fetishism um, uh, in in Fitzgerald. I also object. I know we shouldn't think about the author. I also object to um, what he did to Zelda. Uh-huh. Yes. And so when we when we open, um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> one person. Yes. Drinks on me, sir. Thank you. 
when, when we open trust, and it's strange, I'm not sure I've ever in an interview asked a question about the contents page before. Um, but this is a very specific contents page. So for those of you who haven't read it, the on the very first page of, of trust, it is a contents page, and it details the four sections of the novel. Yeah. So you have Bonds by Harold Vanner, My Life, Andrew Bevel, A Memoir Remembered by Ida Partenza, and Futures by Mildred Bevel. Yeah. So I'd just like to hear you reflect a little bit on, because a, a big part of the book is in the, I guess, the element of surprise in where it goes yeah. and where it takes the reader. And yet you're also presenting the reader with something on the first page, which perhaps makes them, it sows an element of doubt. So could you just reflect a little bit on the decision to include that content? Oh, Adam, you, you're the best. Uh, uh, the, the table of contents, I always thought of it, and I, I know this sounds hyperbolic, but, but I always thought of it as the fifth book mm -hmm. in, in the book. So the novel is made up of four books, right? Uh, different, almost standalone uh, books. <clears throat> the first of which is a novel within the novel. And, um, and uh, I wanted the table of contents to be there because for, for different reasons. Uh, a practical reason, for example, is that the second book, which is a a loud, man-spreading memoir written in this super annoying tone. Um, I, I wanted for the reader to know that it's short. Like, it's okay, you're gonna be fine. It's just a few pages. So that's why it's there. What, that's one practical reason. The other reason is that I was hoping sort of to enlist the reader as a, as a detective here. And this is like, this is the roadmap for, the, and, and the book is evidence, right? Um, so, um, and I also wanted to question, you know, in a friendly way, the novel as a form, because novels are not supposed to have yeah. table of con tables of contents of, of, of this kind, but also sort of the, the four part um, s structure has to do a little bit, music is really important in the in the in the book, and it is a little bit a sonata form with the final chapter, you know, uh, or book or document or section, you know, uh, uh, bringing back as in, a, as in a final coda or the motifs. And then today, I was I was speaking to a, to a, a Belgian journalist, and um, it it could also be thought of like four tracks, and and the reader is being invited to be the the producer or the engineer, and, and you can make one voice louder than the other depending on, on how you read the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and for that, I feel that the, that the, that the table of contents is, is all important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, in, that idea of four tracks I find very interesting, and anyone who, who knows me will know I am tone deaf and know very little about music. But there, one could also say that it's a sort of each of the sections is a, the sort of the, an improvisation on the same story, yes. in a way. And, and that is one of the things I think which is the most sort of fascinating interrogations of the novel, is how stories are told and who gets placed at the, at the center of the story. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think the, t the, the, the title, Trust, speaks, speaks to that and to the to the sort of contracts we enter into each 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 time, each time we read a story, and this is why, since we're talking about music, why not expand the the the, the metaphors or the semantic field of that and say, you know, it is a polyphonic novel, it is a choral novel, where voices are stacked. It's it is a bit like a chord as well, um, and I actually toyed with the notion of having sort of all four books being interwoven or intertwined, <clears throat> it didn't work. I, uh, in my head, I never got to even do it. I liked this idea of stacking these voices in, in, in this way and having literally the most important voice like in the last tectonic layer of this kind of novelistic lasagna. Yeah, yeah. And that's... <laughs> And I'm glad you've described it as the most important voice because one of the things, um, if you've read the book, you'll appreciate is how difficult this novel is to talk about without spoiling it for people. Without because part of the 
part of the, 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 the pleasure of reading, of reading Trust is that you, as the book advances, your point of view as a reader shifts. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this question in a slightly vague way and allow you to expand it however you feel I'm comfortable. A, I'm a friend of vagueness. Um, is that sort of, when I started the book, I assumed it was the story of one of the characters. And as the book went through, I realized increasingly it was more the story of one of the other characters. Yes. And that shift was pro proposed to me as a reader, quite a lot of profound questions about my, my assumptions about a book when I read it and, and the way that I engage with the way that books are structured and, and, and the sort of, I guess, the authorial voice. There are so many possible ways to react to your very keen comment. Um, what I, but I would choose to say first, and and then you know I would like to talk about the shifts. But is that you know you mentioned point of view, which which is a very important term for me, and I and I feel you know the the master of it was Henry James, who who wrote beautifully about it in his New York edition prefaces um, around 1912, and sp speaks beautifully about it. And I think point of view is is so crucial to me because it's where ethics reside in storytelling. Um, because point of view has to do with the administration of knowledge of the, of the story. And of course, where, where administration of knowledge is involved, there is a power dynamic. So uh, abusing point of view to me is the gravest crime that, that a narrator or an author can, can commit. Um, this is because of Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> Um, and um, we'll let it pass. <laughs> you know, you know when you have. I, I feel that detective fiction is a really good example. You know, when you have this narrator who knows everything about all the characters, even what they have dreamt, but he doesn't know who the killer is. You see the disproportion, right? So, so you can withhold knowledge just for effect, which, which I think is ob objectionable. Um, so so I'm, I'm very concerned with point of, point of view, and I'm very concerned to never pull a fast one on the reader and never to deceive. And like all, all, the, all the clues, going back to putting the reader in the place of the detective, all the clues are here. So the ending can be, ah, or it can be, ah. You know, depending on how many clues you, you, you picked up along the way, but it's all there. there. There's no trickery, is what I'm trying to say. About the shift, sorry, this is a long answer. About the shift in, in, in voices and, and, and in point of view, again, you know, I, 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 was, I was trying to, you know, gently invite readers to, to question the assumptions that go into certain voices, certain genres, certain places of enunciation, yeah. you know, we're, we're in this, we're slightly elevated here, for example, that affects the way, and holding microphones. Um, uh, so, so tone, genre, place of enunciation, author, right? All of this predisposes us to think that certain voices are more robustly anchored in referential reality while we excuse other voices to be engaged with it at all. And, and here you will find fiction, and here you will find something that we could hastily call history. Needless to say, I'm, 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 I'm here to, hoping to question the evanescent line between these two extremes. One thing we also find in the novel is that sense of kind of point of view, not just a sort of, I guess, what one might consider a declared point of view, something which is sort of obvious based on the... <coughs> the position, let's say, that the, the person is writing from. But also, I guess, the, the subconscious point of view. And I think of this so um, in the section uh, written by Ida Partenza, who is, um, there's, there's this wonderful moment where even she isn't sure, in a sense, whether she's writing about uh, Andrew Bevel or if she's writing about her father. And so you get this sort of- That's right. This sense of a point of view which is, was sort of declared her position, her relation to Andrew Bevel, but also the, the, the influence of this important relationship and this important figure in her life in the way that she understands uh, her subject. Yeah, well, again, so, so many things to say. The, f the first one would be that 
as she is. So for those of you who haven't read, so it doesn't become so esoteric. <laughs> what happens, can I do this like super duper fast? Okay, what happens in the, in the book is, the book opens up with a novel that is ostensibly about the richest couple on planet Earth. It's like that level of wealth. And um, that comes to an end, and then you're presented with a second document, which is a fragmentary memoir. And as you read along, you figure out that, oh, this is the real man on whom this novel was based, and he does not like the way in which he and his marriage has been depicted. So he wants to set the record straight. The definition of straight is, you know, crucial. This kind of ends abruptly. It's an unfinished manuscript, and we move on to part three, which is a mem these two first two documents were written in the 1930s. Now we're like in 1985, and it's this um, you know grand dame of American letters in New York, uh, who's looking back on the beginning of her career, and uh, and lo and behold, her first like proper gig was as the secretary of the tycoon who wrote the second unfinished memoir. Um, and we learn, I usually don't say this, but Adam said it, so I, it's, it's okay. I tried so hard. No, 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 you, you're doing, you're, you're, you're killing it. And um, I mean, in a, in a good way. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, uh, so we learn as we read on, this is a minor spoiler, that it was actually she, this, this, this young woman who's the daughter of an Italian anarchist immigrant who ghost wrote the memoir of the great tycoon. As she's looking back on her life, she's also going through the papers of the tycoon's wife, wherein she finds uh, the wife's uh, personal diary, which makes up the fourth and last part of the book. So I, I hope this like, makes it a little bit clearer for those who, thank you for the emphatic nod, and, and yeah, and uh, yeah. Um, so your question, I, I know this was a setup for an answer to a question that I now have forgotten. I was asking about the, um, the, the sort of, the, I guess, the subconscious influence of um, the lives of the writers who are engaging with Andrew Bevel, the way that kind of the impact that that has on the way that they present him in their, in their version of him, let's say. Yeah, so if I understand the question correctly, I, I would have to quote another favorite novel of mine, which is Frankenstein. Um, which is a very important book to me and one that I go back to over and over again. Read the 1818 version, not the second one, because it's not as good. And um, I was thinking of this monster who is, who is this tycoon, you know, and how in his memoir, the ghost-written memoir, this young woman who's very, very talented makes his voice up by using all these other great voices of other great men from history, like body parts. You, you, you see where this is going. So, so this great Frankenstein, obviously, is very tall, is larger than life. So this great man is, is, is stitched together with these discursive fragments from, from other great men of history that, that she kind of pillages. There's, there are no direct quotes in the, in the novel, but this is ostensibly what she says herself that she's doing. Um, so in this case, it's, you know, it's, it's to create, again, this, this kind of monster. Um, but, but honestly, I feel that this is the way each one of us as subject uh, subjects is constituted. You know, we are made up by by a, by a multitude of, of narratives. You know, the ones we tell about ourselves, and the ones other people tell about us, and how we negotiate those stories. And and ours is not necessarily truer than the other ones, just because it's ours. And the loudest voice in this narrative is again also not necessarily the most reliable ones so I, I, I think reality in itself has this kind of polyphonic uh, uh, tissue it's it, yes and in fact the um, as you said earlier the person who is in one I guess in a sense the victim of these tellings more than anybody else is um, the the voice we get in the in the final section so the 
the, the Mildred Bevel, the wife right. of, of Andrew Bevel. And I was wondering, before we get into that, might you read the the extract that we oh yeah that we had planned because yeah. it would be good to, to hear so a little bit of the. Can we like can we ask because I I am I am a very bad listener of readings. Shall I read like for five minutes? Is that is that is that okay? All right, okay. I like I tune out when people read, so this is why I'm genuinely asking, and it's not. Um, it is truly five minutes, so do tune out for five minutes, and then I'll be back. And I'll fill. I'll, you, you'll be back if you do tune out. I'll fill you in at the end about what uh, what I read. Um, all right, so uh, a minor setup. So this comes from uh, the first novel within the novel that I was telling you about, if you remember. And it is written in this kind of turn-of-the-century tone that I really, really love, sort of these dying forms, in this case, the novel as a form, but I love sort of dying forms in painting. Like, I love Whistler. I love dying forms in music, I love Mahler, you know, I, I love these liminal moments. Um, so it's very kind of Jamesian Wharton-esque, uh, one hopes. And um, so here's what happens. We, we here meet the true protagonist of the book, who is Mildred Bevel, in her fictional incarnation. Her name is Helen Brevoort. She comes from a very wealthy Knickerbocker family from Albany, like New York blue, blue blood but they're totally broke. And what they do, this is like uh, right before the Great War, so like 1912, 13. So what they do is, uh, what many of these families did at the time, they came to Europe and couch surfed and, and like crashed on their rich friends' villas and palazzos, you know, and just, just leached. Uh, so this is what's happening. Um, and we first meet her here as a, as a young woman. Nothing much happens in terms of plot, so don't expect big sort of beats. Um, I'm really selling this. <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, also there, there are some names that you do not need to retain. They're totally, it doesn't matter. All right. <clears throat> <clears throat> Early in her youth, a quiet but decisive event took place. Helen had, oh, sorry. Early in her youth, a quiet but decisive event took place. She and her parents were staying at Mrs. Osgood's villa in Lucca. Helen had been walking through the grounds and then stunned by the heat around the empty house. They were the only guests. The servants scurried away at the sound of her steps. A dog splayed out on the cool terracotta floor, its half-open eyes staring into its cranium was having convulsive dreams. She looked into the drawing room. Her father and Mr. Osgood had fallen asleep in their armchairs. Helen felt softly vicious possessed by a vague desire to do harm. She realized she was peering through the bottom of boredom. There was violence on the other side. She turned on her heels and went back out into the garden. As she reached the shady spot where her mother and her host were having lemonade, she simply announced that she was going for a stroll in town. Perhaps because her tone was so peremptory, Perhaps because her mother was in the middle of an emphatically whispered conversation with Mrs. Osgood, or perhaps because Hazel and Copper Luca glowed with benevolence that afternoon, there was no objection. Just a quick side glance from Mrs. Brevoort, who told her daughter to enjoy her passeggiata, but not to go too far. And so, unnoticed by everyone other than herself, a new chapter began for Helen. For the first time in her life, she was out in the world on her own. She barely paid attention to the country road and its surroundings, lost in her fulfilled dream of independence, but she was woken up by the stuccoed silence that first met her in town. The dry echo of her shoes on the cobblestones was all she could hear in the empty streets. 
Every few steps, she gently dragged a foot just to feel the skin on her neck tingle with delight at the murmur of leather on stone. With each block, the small city became livelier. Trying to prolong the sense of elation she had found in the initial stillness, she walked on with buoyant aplomb, away from the voices crashing at distant intersections, away from the mercantile clatter coming from the square, away from the liquid hoofbeats clip-clopping around the corner, away from the women yelling from window to window as they unpin their laundry and into alleyways with houses shuttered against the heat where she could hear again her solitary steps. She knew then that this solemn form of joy, so pure because it had no content, so reliable because it relied on nobody else, was the state for which she would henceforth strive. Trying to avoid the hubbub of the square where some sort of jubilee or religious festa was now taking place, Helen found herself on a street with a few shops. One of them was a double anachronism. A photographic studio could only be an incongruity in that small city with its, with its Etruscan past that made medieval churches feel new. But on closer inspection, this dissonant apparition from the future revealed itself to be, in fact, old. The portraits in the window, the cameras on display, the services offered, all remitted to the early days of photography. And somehow, Helen experienced those 30 or 50 years by which the shop was outdated more acutely than the 20 centuries elapsed since the city's foundation. She went in. The shop, chalky, with light streaming through the delicately unclean windows, revealed a strange sort of indecision. At first, Helen thought the beakers, pipettes, and oddly shaped glassware, along with labeled flasks, bottles, and jars, were part of the great assortment of props that cluttered the rooms. Bicycles and Roman helmets, parasols and stuffed animals, dolls and nautical accoutrements. But gradually, she understood the place was stuck somewhere between the realms of science and art. Was this a chemist's laboratory or a painter's studio? It seemed as if both sides had given up a good while ago, leaving the dispute unresolved. A small man with kind or exhausted features came out from behind a curtain in the back. He was delighted to find that this foreign young lady spoke Italian so well. After a short conversation, he produced an album with cabinet cards, the old-fashioned kind Helen's mother used to collect as a child. She recognized many of the objects the legionaries, hunters, and sailors held in the photographs. The man said she should make an imposing Minerva. He enrolled the backdrop of the Parthenon, placed Helen in front of it, and rummaged through the props for a helmet, a spear, and a stuffed owl. Helen declined. But before disappointment set in on the photographer's face, she said she would very much like to have her picture taken. No costume, though. No backdrop. Just her, standing there in the shop. The photographer, pleased and confused in equal measure, proceeded to record the first day of Helen's new life. Thank you. I'm so pleased that you proposed to read that section because it's one of the ones I've thought most about since, um, since reading the book. Really? Because I think it was in the, in the first section is one of the most kind of profound moments and one of the one things that seems to, to shape the reader's vision of Helen and then later Mildred. And yet there's no certainty as you read the book whether that was an event that occurred in any way in Mildred's life or whether it was invented by this Harold Vanner, this writer, as somebody who, as a way to, perhaps for him, to, to, to understand yes. um, Mildred. Um, and I was thinking of it again, because I spoke to the French novelist Leila Slimani the other week, who is oh, in cool. the middle of a sort of a, a trilogy about her, her, essentially about her family. But she said, so much of it is in fictional, and yet in fictionalizing the story, she feels she's in some way getting closer to the truth and closer to an understanding oh, that's great. of her family. 
So I was wondering if you could reflect, if you could in some way sort of separate yourself from Harold Vanner, uh, this novelist of your own creation. Um, if, how, how you feel about the sort of the, the potential, I suppose, for fiction to approach truth, even if the, even if the facts are not strictly uh, accurate. Oh man, this is this is like this. I love this is my jam. I um I you know remember a moment ago I was sort of saying that people are 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 too eager to let to sort of cut the isthmus that 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 ties fiction to truth and make it a drifting island into like a an ocean of irrelevance i suppose ultimately in 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 epistemological terms like it doesn't matter um fiction and uh, you know I, I i couldn't i couldn't disagree more i, I and and a little a little while ago I, i wrote this essay where i came up with this with this expression that sums it up uh, quite nicely i mean my position about this which is i feel that you know th there is this there is this um referential fetish in fiction that that everyone is super eager to fact check fiction and to make sure that it is that it is tied into reality in 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 a in a contrastable falsifiable verifiable way and subjecting fiction to 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 almost to scientific standards which the, the you know which is which is insane yes thank you it's 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 bonkers you know and like authors research their books which which to me is 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 baffling you know <laughs> What do you mean research? You know, this this is research involves a sort of a, a formal protocol and a and a method in the in the most Cartesian sense, you know, of of steps that are repeatable, contrastable again, and falsifiable, uh, that are supposed to, you know, uh, 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 c confirm or or disprove some kind of fact of uh, of reality. I think literature and art in general works in a completely different way. Emotions are are very high up there. Chaos is very important. Method, not so much. And and you know, uh, instead of research in literature and fiction, we have a much better word, which is reading. I mean, why why confine ourselves? Why put on this referential straitjacket? Um, however. After this tirade and rant, I would I would say that 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 fiction and 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 storytelling in general in 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 in, in literature in film in in drama has a very intimate relationship to truth, but I think it's in the order of experience. Um, that is, um, uh, uh, fiction tells us uh, what what it is to experience. Reality. What I'm not going into whatever that means. That's boring, um, right? Like we, we uh, yeah. But or, or for a different venue. Okay. Yes. Um, what I'm saying is the the beauty of fiction is that it it provides um, a portrait of 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 what it is to experience experience reality while adding an experience. To that reality, yeah. so so that is something that is that is very touching and and very beautiful to me about about fiction and and, and storytelling, and I think that you know if if you were to look for for a credible or 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 um, 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 convincing record of what it means to be a human on Earth, I think you could do. No better than to turn to fiction. Oh. The last three thousand years or so of yeah. at least Western fiction, way more than history for for what this experience of being alive means. Yeah. I think I think fiction has done a, a pretty good job at that. Mm. I, I would say with the caveat, good fiction, because one thing we find in the book as well, which I I I really appreciate, and I don't, I don't think it's called into question enough, 
in uh, in a lot of novels is this idea of kind of I suppose certain emotions or certain conditions as used as literary tropes. Um, oh, yeah. So the the two that I think of which you um, which you sort of touch on and as, and resist as tropes in trust are this idea of genius and this idea of mental illness. Yes. And um, one of the things that I think is so profoundly sort of important and meaningful about this novel is that it, it resists the kind of, I suppose, the straightforward, let's say, novelistic or use of either of these conditions as metaphor. You know what? I, 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 I understand what you're saying and, and I, I, you know, I, I agree in general, except for the word resist. I, you know, I, I am very, very interested in cliches and commonplaces mm. and sedimented tropes. Mm. I think they're very valuable and I, I, I don't necessarily resist them. I don't for sure discard them just because they're overtrodden or, or, or trite. I'm, I'm very drawn to that. And I think something has calcified in, in whatever you know overused trope. There is something there, however objectionable. Maybe it's something that, that we need to address and, 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 and break up. Um, but I, but I, I wouldn't say I resisted. Like I, I, I do honestly and firmly, I, and I did that in my previous novel too, with with a bunch of inherited and 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 to my taste, uh, two unquestioned uh, tropes. Um, so again, I'm quibbling, but it's not that I that I'm resisting. I think I think I'm I'm sort of. I like to think that I'm using the weight of the trope against itself. But um, um, uh, the trope of mental illness, of course, is, and, and it's, it's one that concerns me, you know, for, for, for different biographical uh, family reasons, and I wanted to find a way to talk about that, um, which brings back maybe what Leila was saying. Um, but um, I think um, uh, it's it's such a heavy trope in in Anglo-American literature, the, the you know the Mad Woman in the Attic, that that I that I thought merited to be to be addressed, and you know the 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 the, the pic, one of the Picador edits finished that first book, which you know it, it ends in a in a in a rather violent uh, scene, in, you know at a at a mental institution. This editor told me that she threw the book across the room against against the wall because she was she was so angry at it, which is the total. The, it's the it's the right it's the proper reaction, but it, it is the proper reaction. And and uh, but then, hopefully the, the the book does the work of 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 you know of turning that around some somehow. You mentioned a second trope that now oh the genius, the genius. Yeah, um, I mean, the genius, that's a really interesting, nobody has brought that up, but I think, yes, I think the genius is an important trope in, in, like, in American culture in general. I think uh, to a certain extent, America, the United States, hasn't outgrown romanticism yet. That's what superhero films are. Like it's 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 that it's 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 that conception, you know, very German nineteenth-century conception of the self and its and its capabilities. Um, and I'm very interested in in <laughs> in that. Does that make sense? Or it, no, no, yeah. it makes it makes perfect sense. And it comes back to the final thing I wanted to touch on before. Opening questions to the audience, because I'm sure there are many of you who'd like to ask Anand something. But comes back to this idea that which you have raised of this idea of the um, the great man theory of history. Yeah. And and, and this is something which uh, is sort of almost at the beginning of the book. It's sort of the 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 early chapters embodies, and then sort of meticulously um, dismantles. Yeah. No. The the idea, of course, is is to present this big man and then to and then to take a chisel at, at the sculpture that, that is built. But, but without killing the human man at its core. And I think that was one of the things that 
was worked oh, so well about the book. Yeah, I mean, of, you kill yeah. the great man without finishing off the human. Well, you know, it's it's hard when you're writing about sort of, you know, a big capitalist jerk, which he certainly is. <laughs> you know, to depict him as a you know as a cigar chomping, uh, uh, top hatted, pinstriped, uh, spatted kind of uh, cartoon, and then just take a stick and and beat him up. But I, it was important to me that this that this man, you know, to show that to the extent that his very small, shriveled raisiny heart is capable he's has great love for for his wife and i think i think that is his enormous tragedy and it's where his humanity uh resides ultimately yeah which i think is a perfect place for us to leave our conversation all right if you have a question for and raise your hand and we will get the microphone to you um i see a hand Oh. Tentatively being raised over. No, it's it's a very assertive hand. Okay. <laughs> I think it's it's a very yes. It's a just behind you yeah. now. Oh, yeah. Hi, thanks for sharing a bit of your philosophy and personal views. Oh, that's too excessive, story. but thank you. Yes. It's just, <laughs> okay. It's just yeah, um, the prose is very striking. You um, have a nice balance between uh, laying out the setting, the facts, but then giving these uh, incisive character insights right where needed. I was wondering um, if these are based on actual characters or how you developed that, that prose style. Oh, the, the prose style or the characters or both? Both. Okay. So for the for, uh, the characters are all fully made up, like no referential uh, um, ties whatsoever. Totally made up, all of them. Um, there are echoes here and there of things that I've read. For style, very concisely, um, um, I I view it as a failure if I am in the book. Like I need to be gone, you know. So. Um, uh, I, um, uh, f the first book, uh, we just talked about Henry James and Edith Wharton. I could add Vernon Lee or Constance Fenimore Wilson, turn of the century figures. For the second book, you know, I, I subsisted on this, on this unsavory diet of, you know, great men from the 19th century, from like Benjamin Franklin to Herbert Hoover. Cannot recommend that experience to anyone. <laughs> Uh, for the third book, which was the hardest one to write, it's written in this kind of like new journalism tone, like late 60s, early 80s, Lillian Ross, Joan Didion. And that's where I, editing that book, I realized that I had failed uh, and I had to like redo the, all of it and write style guides, one for each book. And um, because I realized that everyone used commas like whatever, in introductory prepositional adverbial clauses the same way, which is impossible if you have four different people. That, that was just me. Yeah, so, so like I marked up all the commas in the White Album and then tried to learn how to use commas differently. Um, and, then, and, then, um, and then for the fourth book, which is the most intimate and sort of the hardest emotionally to write, I think the influences, the main influences were, uh, you know, Gene um, uh, Riz, who's a titanic writer for me, and uh, Virginia Woolf, and, um, and uh, 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 Sylvia Townsend Warner, and uh, Owen, oh, Gertrude Stein, you know. Um, so, so, yeah, it's this weird constellation. Yeah. Yeah, we have a question just there. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the anarchist oh, dad. Yeah. He was one of my favorite characters in the book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the anarchist dad. So remember remember that grand dame who is writing the thing, the third book? Her dad is an Italian anarchist. And um, um, I, I really like that character, too. And uh, he's complicated. I also can't stand him, you know. And, and uh, there's a lot of my dad, <laughs> which explains that, um, <laughs> that ambiguous relationship. But, um, you know, uh, the, there are two 
very important things to me about that character. The first one has to do with the fact that during the first three decades of the 20th century, the United States had a chance to have a real left. Spearheading, among the people spearheading this movement were Italians. Not all of them were anarchists. Some were just social organizers, you know, union, labor activists, socialists, communists, anarchists. Yeah, sure. Like the full menu of possibilities. They were squashed so hard, so bloodily. And there is no, nobody talks about this, which is this book is so much about bending and aligning history and reality. This is gone. Like, I worked at very serious archives. I was a fellow at the New York Public Library. I had full access. I visited private archives in the United States, in Italy. There is so little. There is almost nothing about this. It has been effectively erased, which is shocking. I mean, we know the highlights, like, you know, the, the Immigration Quota Act of 1924, where they were forbidden to enter the country. We know of the execution of Zacco and Vanzetti. But there were so many lynchings and so many bloody persecutions and so much discrimination. So I really wanted to talk about that in, in a non, hopefully, finger-wagging way. The second reason is that in a novel that is, that is so ostensibly about the patriarchy, the only two patriarch that we see is this guy, the anarchist who, for all his revolutionary politics, is a total bigot and reactionary when it comes to domestic politics, you know, and doesn't doubt for a second to, you know, resort to child labor just because he has a daughter. So to me, it was important to show how misogyny really cuts across class and ideological lines. And it's just, and, and there is a very special bouquet of, uh, of left-wing uh, misogyny that I that I that I know very well, and that again, that was something that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for one or two more questions. If anybody would like. Sorry, to. I'm being verbose. Okay. Yes. Yes, we have a question from uh, Nicolas Richard at the end. Yes. Hi. Translator, but hi. No. Um, I was wondering, you said that you don't do research, or you think it's uh, kind of crazy to think that authors do do research. So how do you write about the New York Stock Exchange uh, with the fluency that you have? Is it all lies? <laughs> 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 um, well, I, I, I mean, I hope it was understood that I object to research as as with with a sort of connotation it carries from the hard sciences. I, I did say that I do a lot of reading or that I suggested that we should replace the word research with reading. So what I did um, what I did is, you know, I, I, I did a lot of archival work and I work with primary sources. So I, I taught myself about finance, which I know nothing about. So yeah, a lot of it is lies. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I did so by reading mostly, actually exclusively, um, materials from the 20s and 30s. So, like, financial treatises and newspapers and, and, and reports and, like, full collections of Fortune magazine, which was beautiful, by the way, at the time. Lots of congressional hearings, and you know, that were opened after the crash. And taught myself how to talk about money in that sense. But the lies actually are not on me. The lies are on money talk. Uh, there is a lot of it that is objectively complex and has to do with math and statistical analysis and is for real uh, uh, very sophisticated. And a lot of it is bullshit. And, and I was very drawn to the bullshit side, how we're led to believe there is this rhetorical uh, varnish over finance, you know, that that is there to make us think that it is beyond reach. Like, look at look at any statement you get in the mail related to your money. They are designed for you not to read them. They do not want to be read. They do not want to be read. And this is true about money talk in general. And this is a rhetorical effect that I was interested in. So, I I, I feel that the the, the what you 
detect as fluency, which is very flattering, is, is just reproducing this kind of rhetorical spin that I, that, I, that I think we are subjected to almost on a daily basis. Yeah. And we will finish with a question from uh, the French translator of Trust. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot, Hernan, for sharing your philosophy. <laughs> You're being no, mean now. <laughs> I have a, no, I have a question about, uh, about actually the, the structure of the novel, and especially at the very beginning, when you started thinking about it, or when you started writing the novel, uh, did you have the, the four parts in mind, or did you start working on, on one part and, and thought, maybe I, should, I could or should push things forwards? Other, in other words, do you have the whole thing in mind already or you didn't know when you started writing? I, I, am, I, am, I know the answer to this. I, <laughs> um, I am not a platonic writer. Like I, there isn't an, an idea of the novel that then is realized in a contingent material way. On, on, you know. um, to me, uh, it's a novel, and I, I know this sounds impossibly pretentious, but I swear to you this is the way I work. It's the truth. It's also very ineffectual and, again, cannot recommend. But to me, a novel is made up by sentences. Like, and, and I really, I swear, like I have vague notions of where the whole thing is going, but, but I do not know how it's going to play out until it's on the page, until I see syntax, until I see punctuation, until I feel something material on the page, you know? So I, I started writing this as a very straightforward book, and it wasn't working, it, mostly because, to me, the main issue I realized uh, very soon, responding to your question, was the issue a voice, and I was I was set to I was determined to write about money, right? Um, but but then immediately as I started reading, you know, referring to your question and educating myself, you were distracted. You were not paying attention. <laughs> as soon as I started reading, I, you know, I confirmed something that is not entirely shocking, which is that women have been completely written out of these. Do you guys know when the first woman was given a seat? at the New York Stock Exchange? 1975. Oh my goodness, is the correct reaction to that. <laughs> you know, and up to the 60s, late 60s, women had to have a male co-signer to open a bank account. So, and, and the consequences of this, of course, are just beyond comprehension and grasp, or, and all too real, of course. So this, this immediately became the focus. So, so I thought, instead of merely thematizing the issue of voice, why not enact it formally? And, and that's, that's when the whole thing took off. And actually, when I decided, oh, what if this great man who yells at us from the page, what if his voice actually was the invention of this voiceless young immigrant woman? And, th and that's really when it all came together. But it was only in, 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 in the writing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is all we've got time for, at least for the, the formal discussion part of the evening. I do hope you all stick around, continue the conversation with Hernan, continue the conversation with each other. We have plenty of copies of Trust. In fact, we have every possible version of Trust you wow. could want. We have the British hardback, the British trade paperback, the British paperback, the American paperback. We also have copies of In the Distance, Anand's first novel, uh, all available from our antiquarian store here. Anand will be uh, signing copies here. Can Please. we give it up for Adam? Just, I'm <laughs> just saying, yeah. Thank you. I'm embarrassed now, but you're very kind. That's okay. Um, all that remains for me to say <laughs> is please give a big, big thank you oh. to Anand Diaz. Thank you, Adam. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This is surreal. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.